Leviticus 19, verses 19 through the rest of the chapter. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. You may be seated. So, uh, wow, what's with some of that stuff, right? I'd like to begin in verse 1. I'm not going to get past verse 2 today. And the uh, title of the sermon, Imitators of God, I, I, I want you to leave with this idea in your mind. To begin, okay, the first sentence of this chapter, I am the Lord, and, sorry, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, dot, dot, dot. It suggests there's a mood, a mood change here. And you'll see, if you look back at the beginning of most of the divisions, the chapter divisions throughout Leviticus, they begin with that same phrase, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, you, you can look, 
It's because the people who dissected the Scripture into chapters and verses felt that that phrase, and the Lord spoke to Moses, represented a change of thought in Leviticus. So they made it a different chapter. It's like God saying, here's something else that is important to me. So, okay, let's make that the next chapter, is what they did. Secondly, who is it that speaks to Moses here? According to this verse, it's the Lord, with all capital letters, as we discussed in a recent sermon. It means the I am. The self-existent one is speaking. This is, this is not a territorial God with a, with a lowercase g. It's not some chimp idol as the pagan nations might craft. It is neither a heavenly being, angel or, or devil, talking to Moses. This is the creator and eternal triune one who has always been and will always be the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. He's the one who speaks, and he has chosen to come close to Moses and Israel. Whatever it is he wants, you do. That's something I find missing in society. Whatever it is he wants, you do. Thirdly, Leviticus 19, the chapter, is interesting in that it is not a chapter about sacrificing, sacrifices and offerings, really. There's some of that here, but it's, it's not a chapter directed to Aaron and the priests and how they should conduct their tabernacle work. It's a chapter of daily and and weekly life of, of commands, mostly ethical, with some ritualistic too. Leviticus 19 is actually drawn, according to many rabbis, from the Ten Commandments. It's compared by others to the Sermon on the Mount. And the commands are meant, this is, going to come up more later, the commands are meant for the entire community to follow. The Lord speaks to Moses, he wants him to tell the whole congregation how to behave. God tells Moses, this is for all of them. Fourthly, in this chapter, there's an interesting cross-section of God's rules, Some seem relevant to our day, while others appear time-bound or something. Some will seem obvious to you and me. We will think to ourselves when we hear them, why, of course, I should do this thing or, or not do that. For example, we expect that we should revere our mother and our father according to verse 3. And that we should never oppress, oppress our neighbor or rob him. 
right? Verse 11. All good Christians see those commands as legitimate and binding on us today. However, other rules mixed in between, right, those will cause us to hesitate and wonder, hey, wait a minute. Am I required to do, to do these as well? For example, Moses instructs the congregation to plant fruit trees, but not to eat the fruit from them until the fifth year of growth. Verses 23 and 24. What's with that? Also, they were told not to round off the hair on their temples or mar the edges of their beards, make any cuts on their body for the dead or tattoo themselves, verses 27 and 28. What about those rules? And do they still matter for us today? Let me say this. If you love God and want more of him, none of these should cause you to bristle one way or the other. You should never put your guard up against God. Now, you might put your guard up against me, who is going to interpret and try to understand and bring forward the relevance of these Scripture texts. I've got to interpret the text correctly, for sure. But we have to rightly understand and not feel afraid that what God says to Moses here, we're okay with it. We're not going to fight against him if it's something he wants of us. But again, there's the challenge. Indeed, understanding, okay, first of all, listen to this, two rules. First of all, we need to understand what God meant by these instructions. That isn't always black and white. But then secondly, we need to determine whether or not they still apply to the Christian community. And that's a very important two-step process. What did he really mean by these instructions? First. Second, does it still count for the church today? When God says something, it's never proper, however, to cover your ears nor is it sufficient to take on a careless attitude and utter some trite saying taught by the modern church that altogether disregards the Old Testament law. That's foolishness. We've been plagued by that. The modern church has become aimless, aimless because she has followed such a dismissive, interpretive, hermeneutical approach which claims if it's in the Old Testament, it doesn't matter anymore. That's insanity. Please. One more thing as we prepare for the weeks ahead in Leviticus, it's this. Just because God gave these rules to the congregation as a whole, he does not necessarily, he does not necessarily require civil authorities to punish people for breaking them. In other words, the breaking of a rule or unwillingness to fulfill a command does not always make it a crime or misdemeanor or civil infraction. No. 
God gives us rules that can be both personal commands and societal commands, but sometimes sins are not the same as crimes. Sometimes he will deal with us personally for our sin. At other times, the sin is so important that he wants society to deal with it because it is more criminal in its nature. It hurts people. So sometimes he deals personally in his judgment. At other times, he deals both personally and societally. Give you an example. You should revere your mother and father, but if you don't do but if you don't, it doesn't mean that the local magistrate and court system should get involved. Someday they may have to if you don't train up your children properly, or if you're a rebel against mom and dad, someday the courts may have to get involved but not in the minor things. So a mother, which I just saw recently, going toe-to-toe with her nine-year-old in a verbal battle, that mother and that child going on like that, a police officer walks walks past them and looks and sees such disrespect, doesn't mean the police officer should get involved. That's not his place. God will deal with that situation. And he'll deal with a lack of reverence for our parents at any age that we find ourselves in. On the other hand, if you rob from your neighbor, it's likely that the local magistrate and court system may need to get involved. At least they should anticipate by their laws the protection of private property. If you can work it out with your neighbor privately, then that might be enough. But there is a point at which society needs to exact and enact justice. Verse 2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. It's important that we understand God wanted the whole congregation to hear these rules. He wanted them to hear the commands through Moses' mouth. Moses was the guy. He was the mouthpiece of God. Moses was the one who glowed. He was the one that went up on the mountain. He gets to go into God's holy presence and return to teach. But Leviticus 19, it's for all the congregation. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, as with the Ten Commandments. So with these rules, they they were meant for all. I think we got to be reminded at times that God never expected religious leaders or priests or rulers to live differently, to live to, let me put it this way, to live to a different or higher standard, higher standard than anyone else. All people must obey Him. And it used to be in churches growing up that people treated their pastors differently, like 
that they were the holy ones who could do nothing naughty, but I'm not a pastor, right? I'm different. I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. He's the pastor. He's got to be holy, but I'm not a pastor. I can kind of do other things. Sorry. Off, office bearers in the church, pastors or whatever, are not called to live according to to a different standard than anyone else. The difference is supposedly that the office bearer was chosen because why? Because he lived more consistently according to the common rules that God gave us. He lived according to what God said, just as we all should live according to what God says. The office bearer shows signs of a life of steadiness with God. But that does not say that he lives by different rules. You've got to get that into your head. I've heard people say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not as religious as those guys. Or I'm not as religious as her. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it usually means. At least in my quick interpretation. It usually means that that person doesn't choose to obey God's rules as they should. That person likes to keep a buffer between himself and holy people. That person likes to keep the freedom to sin. I'm a Christian, but I'm not as religious as those guys. On the other hand, I, I remember a fellow came into our church. Good guy. And he wanted to have our church officers, elders and deacons, at least the elders, I don't remember the full details. He wanted the church officers to maintain a lifestyle standard that was different, that was higher, a higher standard than the rest of the congregation. I'm sure some of you have heard this before. Some of you might believe it. I don't know. I hope not. But he wanted them to be held to a higher standard. Okay, no drinking, no smoking, none of that kind of stuff. This would be like a a special class of Christian. More would be expected of the leaders than the rest. And And we refused him. We refused him. For it would be inappropriate to superimpose upon God's rules with some kind of higher standard, so to speak? You think about it, it's it's presumptuous. It's presumptuous to think that mere men could come up with rules, this little set of special rules that were better and could lead to a more holy lifestyle than God has already given to all of us. That's, That's goofiness. J.H. Hertz, he writes, there was not a small class of specialists in religion who dwelt apart while the people were sunk in ignorance and superstition. No, he says, Israel was more of a spiritual democracy. We all, we all must be spiritual and live accordingly. 
Which brings me to my next point. God wants Moses to speak to the whole congregation because holiness, the whole congregation, because holiness requires societal participation. Holiness requires societal participation. God wants a holy society. He doesn't just want you being holy. And this notion is based on Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where God says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. He spoke to them as a congregation. They were to be a a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All of them. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Levine writes, this is basic. This is basic to biblical religion. That holiness cannot be achieved by individuals alone. No matter how elevated, pure or righteous... It can be realized only through the life of the community acting together. Now, in your head you may be saying, well, I don't care if no one else wants to be holy, I still do. I'm an independent agent. No, you're not. We need each other to be holy. None of us are steel marbles. There are no independent agents. We live in communities. We're born into families. We we have neighbors and co-workers. We're told to care for birds and animals and plants and trees and land and water and houses and things together. And these rules here, okay, in Leviticus 19 are designed to help grow us in our holiness. But they all, almost all, require interaction with society. You don't become holy if there's no interaction with others in life. The Exodus passage, okay, about the kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that Exodus passage is requoted in the New Testament to include all of us who, who come into Jesus Christ's family. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God wants this society of holy people to grow, to grow and consume all mankind, all the earth. The commands we're about to study involve more than the individual. It requires mothers and fathers, verse 3, and days of the week. They involve eating, verse 7, farm fields, verse 9, and wages, verse 13, and the disabled, verse 14, and cattle and clothing, verse 19, and fruit trees, verse 23, and false religion, verses 26 through 28, and the dead, verse 31, and weights and measures, verse 35. You're not sitting alone in your closet becoming holy. You're interacting with all of these. 
The commands involve society. Also, anytime an individual chooses to be holy like God, you and I see how it affects how it affects the community around that person. You know when somebody becomes a Christian, all of a sudden they start changing their life. Not, not, not always right, but some, they got good hearts, right? They start changing things. They start talking to people differently. They start doing things differently. It affects everybody. And that's okay. That's good. So then God wants a congregation to be holy and growing. He's having Moses speak to the whole congregation. It brings us to the final part of our text. And say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. There it is. He gives us the motive for our obedience. The motive. Be holy because I'm holy. You're my people. You must therefore be like me. This in Latin is called the imitahito Dei. In a nutshell, it's the theological concept of becoming like God. It's the idea that man is, is to imitate him. We should be motivated to take on God's ethical attributes, his ethical attributes. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says it like this. 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he called you, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, quote, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's referring to Leviticus 19. Peter is. The Apostle Paul echoes that saying, Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Rabbi Levine writes, To have a close relationship to God, the people must emulate God. As one of the sages put it, it's comparable to the court of a king. It's comparable to the court of a king. What is the court's duty? To imitate the king. It's what the king wants. That's hard to argue with, right? You cannot really draw close to God all the while you protect your sin. Listen to this. You cannot really draw close to God all the while you protect your sin like a cherished ship in a harbor. He will not permit it. Sin must be repented of. Sin is the opposite of holiness. If you hold tightly to your sin, you lose your grasp on God. It doesn't mean he will lose his grasp on you. But it will feel like he has. And surely Christ's forgiveness, it's the wonderful salve for all of life's ills. But we cannot depend upon it while in rebellion.
In fact, the Apostle Paul, who I just quoted him before saying, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, he says later, Ephesians 5, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Oh, sorry, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then he goes on saying that we were once, that we were once darkness, but that we are now light in the Lord. So we are to walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So the message is really both covenants, both testaments. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This command to be holy implies as does all the rules of Leviticus 19, that our holiness is going to be accomplished and demonstrated by revering and obeying him in every facet of life. We imitate him by doing as he does. We can set aside the Sabbath as God does to set aside the Sabbath, verse 30. We can do justice instead of injustice as he would, verse 15. We can love the stranger like a brother, just as God would, verses 33 and 34. I want to read one more quote. It's a paragraph long. It's got three points that are being made. I want you to struggle to listen to it. It's by J.H. Hertz again. And then I'll say one smaller paragraph of my own afterward. You locked in? Good. Here's what I find um, helpful. Hertz writes this. It is necessary to have a clear understanding of the word holy, kadash. Firstly, it denotes the sublime exalted. It's wonderful, the, the beautiful, sublime. Firstly, it denotes the sublime exaltedness and overpowering majesty of God. In the presence of that divine holiness, mortal man feels but dust and ashes and is crushed by the sense of his own unworthiness, like Isaiah was when he, he saw the vision of God in the temple. Holy, 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 the angels were calling out, and he falls down on his face. He says, don't even get near me, Lord. My lips are unclean and all this kind of stuff. He was undone. That's, that's one way that we should understand God's holiness. Secondly, hurts again. Holy expresses God's complete freedom from everything that makes men imperfect and his recoil from everything impure and unrighteous 
in the words of the prophet, quote, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on, iniqu on iniquity, Habakkuk 1.13. Thirdly, holy stands for the fullness of God's ethical qualities. And this is what I want you to zero in on the most. Holy, holy stands for the fullness of God's ethical qualities. For more than goodness, more than purity, more than righteousness, it embraces all these in their ideal completeness. So I believe, my words, it's out of reverence for God's exaltedness that we should do, that we should do whatever he says. And it's out of shame that our sins would cause him to recoil from us as sinners that we should beg him to make us compliant. And it's for the wonder of being like him in his goodness that our ethical behavior should conform to his ethical qualities. We should be holy as the Lord our God is holy. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you attend to us, that we, should be, that we would want to be holy as you are holy, that that would be our heartbeat, and that whatever that pertains to, that we need to get straight in our thinking, that we need to be, find clarity in, that you would make it clear to us that we might walk in the ways of holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name.